I'm okay. just saying, I think it's amazing that you're here all together. I'm so glad to be here. I did not want to miss, but I just didn't time it. Like, I didn't realize I had to leave at 7.15, not 7.30. Anyway, my poor daughter was five minutes late for school. Anyway, she didn't see her. Okay, so last week we finished by talking about Eliyahu Hanavi and that Yaakov Avinu takes the Vav from, in five places from Eliyahu and holds it as a deposit, a guarantee against the, the time that he will come and inform his children to be Mivaser to his children um, the final redemption. And yeah, and we learned that the letter Vav is a letter of MS and that's associated with Yaakov and that there's a connection between Eliyahu and Yaakov. But we also saw that all the places, the four of the five places where Eliyahu is called Eliyah, which is the name without the Vav, are in this chapter in Malachim Beis, where he comes to give Musr to the king of Israel and says, what is this business of calling the morning? We're just starting. I was late. <laughs> Um, what is this business of going to consult with Baal Zavuv? Is there no God in Israel? Right. That, in other words, there's a God of Israel. What is this? And he gives the message to the messengers, and the messengers come back, and the king is like, why are you back so soon? And he says, because we met this man again. Who is this man? He has a lot of hair, and he's wearing a leather belt. I said, oh, that must be Eliyah. It must be Eliyahu Hanavi, who's Mivaser. Okay. So that was, that was kind of where we got to. Oh, no, and then we talked about the leather belt. Mm -hmm. And that this leather belt was made of the skins of the aisle, of the, the aisle, the ram, that was brought as the korban of the Akedah instead of Yitzchak. So this is a very unusual aisle. Um, it's also the aisle that in Pirkei Avos, we learned, was created during Bein Hashmashos of the first era of Shabbos which means, uh, Rav David Cohen really elaborates on this, but there's others. Was? The aisle itself was. Oh, so it wasn't with the other animals. It was not created with the other animals. Wow. So anything, because really That's everything in the world should be created with as part of the nature. I mean, doesn't mean it isn't miraculous and miraculous, but there are these 10 things that are not part of nature. And they were created separately and then there's, you know, there's the some say this and some say that, including the aisle, this particular aisle. Okay. So the skins became the belt of Eliyahu Hanavi, and the left horn was the shofar blown at Har Sinai for Matan Torah, and the right horn will be blown for the final Geula, and all the sinews are the, became the strings of the harp of David HaMelech, and presumably the meat was burned on the on the Mizbeach, and this is the pile of ashes of Yitzchak that's always before Hashem as a zechus for the Jewish people. Okay. But I, I wanted to, to just move a little bit more with this idea, which is based on the Maharal. I don't see... Okay, it's in the Gurarie on Parshas Yisro. And he's talking about the fact that we blow a Rosh Hashanah, uh, we blow a shofar on Rosh Hashanah, and preferably, we mentioned this last time also, preferably it should be the shofar from an aisle, from a ram. That's the ideal, that's the best. You can use 
from other animals as well. It could be a deer or whatever. But ideally from a ram, because we are evoking the shofar and the ayol and the akedas yitzchak, which is part of the Torah reading on Rosh Hashanah. Now the Maharal goes on to say that anything that's created, anything that was created during that era of Shabbos Bain Hashmashos means that it is not a Tevadic thing. It's not a natural, it's not a normal part of nature. It doesn't come from nature. Nature is one way which Hashem acts into the world. It's kind of the primary way, right? Nature is the most frequent and common expression of God's will. It's what we're accustomed to. But that if something was created in the era of Shabbos of Bain Hashmashos, where it's not really the six days of creation anymore, it's not quite Shabbos. And it's, not, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit Shabbos and a little bit the six days. Just like you light the candles and you can bring in Shabbos early, it, it, it basically it's Shabbos. You, you took something that was six days of creation and made it into Shabbos. Hmm. So he says, what you know then is that these items are not part of nature. They're part of the spiritual world. Now, he doesn't, he hints to it here. He says it in a um, more spelled out way elsewhere, which is the idea that that, well, there's a few ideas that are all based on different maharals that, go to, that you have to like put together here to get the full impact of this gorarye, which is, number one, anything that is for, of, of the spiritual is infinite. That's not really a surprise. We've heard this idea before. That which is physical is finite. That which is spiritual is infinite. It's forever. And it is endless, which means something that is infinite doesn't get used up. Something which is finite does get used up. Okay. And, this, and a second important piece is that when you see something or somebody not in its proper place, that means that its tafkid is to be mashpia. Its job, its role, is, its function is to influence. Now this is very helpful. You find yourself where you didn't expect to be. There's a purpose when you realize, I don't, like, I shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. Maybe it's not a place I feel comfortable. Or maybe it's just like, I shouldn't be at La Brea in Washington. I should be in the conference room at Oraliahu now, right? So why am I there? Right. right? You ask, sure. you can say, if I'm not where I'm meant to be, That's it means there's a hashpa I'm supposed to make here. It's an interesting, interesting and profound insight that has a lot of different implications. This is a spiritual This is thing? just a general statement. Oh, okay. When something is not in where it is meant to be or where we would think it is meant to be, it means that it is there for a purpose of being mashpia. What is mashpia? Influencing putting out, as opposed to, let's say, receiving. There's something it's supposed to be giving out. When we put these two things together, which is not me putting it together, I heard this on a share from Rav Moshe Eisman of Baltimore. Um, 
he was saying it over a combination of, I think, having learned it, it sounds like, from the Maharal and various places in the writings of Maharal, but also um, based on a shear he heard from Rav Hutner on Hanukkah, which is apparently in the in the Pachat Yitzchak on Hanukkah, but I can't tell you which Mimer it is because mine is in storage. So very frustrating. I couldn't actually go look it up myself, but I like it because the timing works out. We can, like, talk a little about Hanukkah, just a little. Um, where the Gurarie says it, this one I did find, is in Parshas Chayesara. So Yitzchak brings Rivka into his mother's tent and loves her. And Rashi says he sees that she is another Sarah. This is Sarah living again. How could he tell? Because the cla- there were three mi- miracles that happened in that tent of Sarah that stopped when she died and that came back again when Rivka entered which was that there was a cloud, a divine cloud of glory that stayed tied to the top of the tent, that the candles lit on Erev Shabbos would stay lit until the next Erev Shabbos, and that there was a bracha in the bread, meaning it multiplied. It was always enough. It never used up. What we get from here is, and, and he brings out from here, let me see if I actually wrote down that one. What he says is that when you have something that is spiritual and therefore infinite, and you see that it has been placed into the physical world, meaning it's going to be mashpia, it's going to be bringing influence into the physical space, but it's out of its place. It's something that belonged in the spiritual world, and now it's in the physical world. It doesn't use up. And so the miracles that happened with Sarah's tent are, are examples of that. So with the challah, there's always enough. There was always enough bread. The dough didn't use up. There was plenty. The candles don't use up. The oil doesn't use up. Why? Because this is a spiritual place. Sarah's tent was somehow like an embassy of the spiritual world on the grounds of the physical world that's indicated by the anon that's tied to it. So you have this spiritual space in the physical plane, so it's putting out bracha and not using up. I'm sorry, you know, I'm sure I wrote it down. It's possible I left the note at home because the way he says it is so awesome. He says this ties to the, it's in Sarah's tent that we see the fulfillment of Hashem's brachos to Avraham. He says, I will make your name great, and I will bless you, and the nations will be blessed for you. You will be a blessing. They are fulfilled in the miracles of Sarah's tent. It's, it's in Sarah and the home that she built that Avraham's brachas were fulfilled. This is like amazing. And that bracha, that you will be a bracha, he says, why is that like the, the Shabbos candles and the challah that like never use up? Because being a bracha, this is something Rabbi Goldberg has talked about. Remember like Shavuot's time with being a bracha that he brought the Zohar? That when you, that's, we talked about that at your house. Um, that when a person becomes a channel for bracha, has an ayin tova, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And is seeing the good and is also wishing and davening that there should be more good for the other person, they become the channel of bracha, they become bracha. 
It flows through them, and it doesn't use up. It's not like by giving someone a bracha that they should have more, that you have less. In fact, the opposite. Okay, so bringing all of these things together, Rav Hutner says, and he's, he's talking about oil, and particularly a correlation between the oil of Hanukkah, which didn't use up, and the Shemen Hamishcha, which was the anointing oil. So the oil that was used to anoint the kings, which never used up. Moshe Rabbeinu made the anointing oil, and they never made another batch. They didn't use it constantly, but it didn't use up. Is it? Well, I don't know. It makes me also think of the story of Elisha with the... With the woman with, with the, the oil that never so used up. Like Very possible. I'm not. I don't know that okay. so deeply, but yeah, it makes sense. Shemen. That I could tell you this. Shemen. Okay, and Pachad Yitzchok says this, but it's based on concepts of the Gurari also. Um, <coughs> Shemen is the same word as Shmona, right? Eight. Now that's not a new idea. I'm sure you've heard that before. If you no, haven't heard it before, actually, there's a new no, no, extra no, Hanukkah no. present. <laughs> <laughs> Menorah stuffers. Yeah, no, that's really good. That's no. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. So there, that's like a bonus prize. Hey, none of us did. Oh, wow. Okay, so we really could have gone elsewhere with this all together. Okay, let's take a second on that. So the Maharal has an approach with numbers. Um, I don't think we'll, we'll start with one, let's say, in the interest of time. But let's do six, seven, eight, because he brings those as a set. And um, Rav Hirsch also expounds on it. Rabbi Katz does, but if you've ever heard Rabbi Tatz talk, it's like 100 miles an hour. And I take a lot of notes and review a lot of times, and I was listening to it while I was walking, so I didn't. Didn't get that. The number six is nature. Okay, so what I'm telling you is more the way Rav Hirsch tells it out from the Gorari, from the okay. Mahara. Okay, the number six always refers to the natural world. Six days of creation. Six. Okay. okay. It's related to the words sas, shish, and sas. It's kind of the same letters, right? The shin and the sin. Sas, sas which is, um, it's, it's happiness. It's a, kind of, it's a form of happiness. It's a very interesting form of happiness because it can be used for happy and it can also be used for not so it's interesting um <clears throat> anyway but we don't we're not supposed to live a life of six okay reverse has a whole approach about a life of six um the mecham of gog and magog gog is gag is a roof mm-hmm. but gog the, the letters gimel gimel is six he says that this all this comes out from a choice of all the nations to live in a world of six to say we're going to live in the natural Gug, world only. God, okay. Yeah, which is like living under a roof. So we have sukkah, and we bring all these karbanos for all of the different nations. It's uh-huh. helping to rectify to get to a state of seven. Sukkah is a seven-day holiday, and we're bringing uh-huh. karbanos for seven days on behalf of all the nations. It's to, help re- it's to help them get a correction to living under seven, because seven is the natural world with kedusha. That's Shabbos, right? Six days of creation plus the seventh day. That's Shabbos. Okay, Sheva is associated with Savea, satisfied, having enough. Ve'ochaltav savato virachta. Where does? Why do you have enough? Sheva is like the word Savea. Savea, having enough, being satisfied. So there's there's two brachos of sat, of being satisfied. One is that Hashem will give you a lot. Your, your storehouses will be overflowing. They'll have tons and you'll, you'll have plenty. Okay, that's a big bracha. There's different brachas associated with shvius, which is shemitah, right? What are uh-huh. you going to do? You're going to six six years and the seventh year you're not going to work. What are you going to do? 
So if you're, if you're worried about that, Hashem says, you don't have to worry. I will give you, within the six years, enough that you'll have overflowing and there'll be plenty. What if you're not worried about it? What if you say, it's fine. It's seven, right? There's six and there's seven. And I know that just like on Shabbos, Shabbos is the source of the bracha that comes into the world. The spiritual, like we were talking about, when the spiritual is the source of your bracha, it doesn't use up. So I'm not worried about not working one day of the week. I work six days, but I know that the bracha isn't finite. It will always keep coming. This is the same reason why Chazal tell us that the money you spend for Shabbos is not part of your accounting for the year. person earns $100,000. And you're worried, how am I going to make it? You know, $100,000 is a really good salary, unless you live in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time you've paid, you've paid tuitions exactly. for three or four kids... You ha- and you're in taxes, there's nothing left for food, transportation, <laughs> maintaining a house, uh, living in a house, health insurance, right? There's nothing left. Okay, so what am I going to do? How can I possibly afford to spend money for meat for Shabbos? I'm going to spend extra for, sh- for Shabbos? We'll live on macaroni and cheese like we do the rest of the week, right? No, but, but Chazal tell us, no, 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 don't worry. The money that was established every Rosh Hashanah, how much money are you going to have this year? The money you spend for Shabbos is not deducted out of that funds. It's like tax-deductible funds, right? Money for Shabbos doesn't come out of that account. That will get replenished. This will come, or some other expense you were going to have doesn't come through. You don't have to worry about that. Money for Shabbos doesn't come. Why? Because Shabbos is the source of bracha, and it's a spiritual source in a physical world. It doesn't use up. It pumps in bracha. It's mashpia. It's putting out. It's It's really a spiritual space in a physical world, and it doesn't use up. So whatever goes from there... That's, it's, uh, that's an endless supply that you can take from anything. Okay? So you go into a Shemitah, and you're a farmer, and everything relies on your farm, and you say, I'm not worried. There's another bracha, which is you will eat a little, and it will fill you. You'll be satisfied. That's also a kind of sovea, of being satisfied. Right? That's considered a bigger bracha. It's actually a higher level bracha. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, because one, you would think, oh, it's better, because I could see that the food is, you know, like if it's a little bit of food, it's going to go a long way. I don't see the whole time that I have enough. I just got to eat less and be satisfied with less. It's actually a higher level bracha. One reason it's a higher level bracha is because, well, this, than than the bracha of having Hashem expand the amount of grain, and that way it lasts you through the extra year. Having it not look like it expanded, but you eat a little and it's enough and you're still satisfied, okay? This is all the idea of Sheva, okay? Sheva is living in the physical world with a spiritual anchor, knowing there's a spiritual pipeline to it. And that's, that's why seven is the natural cycles of nature, are all parts of sevens. Well, they're not exactly the natural cycles. They're this natural plus. It's what natural really should be, which is which what nat- nature really is. It's nature, but it doesn't stand on its own. Yes. Nature is constantly being fed from the physical, from the spiritual. That's seven. Then there's the number eight. Eight is eight is all kinds of things. Eight is lemalam in hateva, which means above the nature, in a plane above that which is natural, supernatural. That's Shmona. That's eight, which is the word Shemen, oil. Okay, so oil, um, when you take something that's physical, like oil, Mm -hmm. and you light it, so now you have this heat, 
which creates light. And light is always our physical world model for spirituality, right? Because by definition, the spiritual doesn't have like a physical form, so we can't relate to it. So or light is always used as the closest muscle in this world to help us understand the concept of spirituality. So the physical becoming something spiritual, that's eight. That's Lamalam in Hateva. Because instead of getting stuck in the spiritual, you take that which is physical. Sorry, instead of getting stuck in the physical, you take that which is physical and you turn it into something that is spiritual. It becomes something more than what it was. That's supernatural. This is, this is really, you're starting to hear the ideas of, of the gvura, of taking ourselves with our yetzahara, with a body, and tying it together and turning it into something more. Okay, the way Rav Hirsch describes it, and I'm, I'm quite sure it also must be based on the source of the Maharal, although I didn't myself see it. Rav Hirsch describes it as the role of the Jewish people. Whereas the number seven is the role of all humanity, except that the nations, already going back to the time of the Tower of Babel, chose to live as six, which was not correct. They were meant to live in a world of seven. The Jewish people, Avraham came, the Jewish people came and said, we want to live in a world of seven. And from there, we're able to elevate all the way up to a world of eight. Eight is the role of the Jewish people. So we have a bris milah on the eighth day. Okay, Eight is always that. So eight is an interesting number because eight is not just eight, which is above the natural, literally, numerically, but eight is also a seven plus one, meaning if seven is a cycle, here's an example of where you have it, with Shemitah. The first year of a Shemitah cycle is sometimes called the eighth year because it depends. Are you thinking about it as the year after the seventh year, meaning you have six years and the seventh year, what will I eat in the eighth year? Meaning if I didn't plan, it's not just what will I eat in the seventh year. If I don't plan in the seventh year, no. I'm not going to have anything in the eighth year. So the Torah sometimes calls it the eighth year. Sometimes it's the eighth year. Sometimes it's the first year. It's both. So eight is even more correctly thought of as a seven plus one. Hmm. So when you hear natural, anytime you see in the Torah the word as, then, you know you're being told not only about something in the, pro- in the near future, proximate I was going to say, that's my patent voice coming out, not just the proximate future, you're also hearing about the end of days future. Hmm. Why? Because the word az then is Olive Zion, one, seven. Oh, Olive Zion. Okay, that's eight. But it's not just eight, it's one on top of a seven. The end of days, the, to- the messianic era is a one on top of a seven. It's a natural world, but it's something that's become much, much more. It's become fully spiritualized. Okay, so this is associated with oil. So the Shem and Hamishcha, coming back to where we were. Wait, Hamishcha is... Hamishcha means anointing, like the word Mashiach. Okay, Okay. and you could also have a Kohen, Meshuach Melchama, the Kohen who is anointed to be leading in a war, right? The one who gets up and says, if you didn't yet um, consummate your marriage and you need your house, you go back as a Kohen, Meshuach Melchama. That Meshuach means anointed, but they drizzle oil on his head, which... Yeah, not our usual. <laughs> if you look into Hillam in the Shir Hamalases, there's 15 Shir Hamalases. So one of them describes like like the drops of oil, like on the forehead of Aaron and then coming down his beard. Yeah, it's like That's a beautiful one, like jewel. Um, it's like jewels on on, on his head. It's in the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Hashem yeah. Hatov al Rosh. Yeah. 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 It's like uh, it's on the place of the tefillin. We might we might touch on that a little in the next bracha. You can see wheels turning in your head for another painting. Well, I, <laughs> I can't wait to I see what's going to come out it. from the aisle. Don't leave without hearing the last bit. <laughs> okay. I have one so. for the oil that's been in my head for like a little over a week now, but with Alicia, mm-hmm. the woman. So like, but yeah. I don't know. It goes. I'm fine. I can get to know it here though. <laughs> okay. So what's the significance of dough light not becoming less is that it's a wellspring. It's a constantly flowing bracha. Now, this is this is an amazing line. This is Rav Eisman said it. He, he he heard it directly from Rav Hutner. Something that is fulfilling its tafkid does not become less through doing so. Mm-hmm. Something fulfilling its tafkid does not get used up by fulfilling its tafkid. And the truth is, we know it in our own lives. When you are fully in sync, like here's my purpose in this moment. Here's what I was sent here to do. Here's my job, and you're doing it. You don't get used up. It's the cure for burnout. Mm-hmm. The cure for burnout is is discovering what your purpose is, and finding how to how to organize your life so that your all the different roles that you have to play are actually flowing and being nourished by the wellspring, so that you're a wellspring and not just a pit of water, a reservoir that can use up. You have to be in touch with the sense of purpose. Something fulfilling its tafkid does not get less because of its tafkid. It is not mechaser you. It doesn't lessen you. It doesn't use anything up. The example he gives is, if someone comes to the door and asks for money, when my feeling is the money is mine and I can share it, maybe I'm generous, maybe I care, maybe I need to be nice, I share it, but I have less. My feeling is that I have less. I know I have less. But if I think it's not my money, you know, if you say, can I leave this envelope with you and someone's going to pick it up and then there's a knock on the door and I give them the envelope, do I feel like I have less? Mm-hmm. I don't feel at all like I have less. I was just delivering it, right? The purpose of that money was to deliver it. I don't feel like I'm missing something. When the purpose of that which I have been given is clear to me that it's for delivering, there's no sense of used upness and there is no used upness. That's the secret. It doesn't use up. It actually keeps flowing. And this is true not only with money. His example was money. The classic example in Torah is actually oil. Shemen, which is shmona, which is that which is above nature. It's that which is above nature. The seven plus one comes up in many, many places. Okay, so we have something. It's in nature, and it doesn't belong here. Coming back to our aisle, our ram. It was created in a time that is not part of nature. This, this ram is not a natural ram. If it were, it would have been created on the sixth day with all the other sheep and flocks and goats and rams and, and ewes and whatever else. It wasn't part of that. That's why nothing of it goes to waste, Maharal says. That's why it's all got to be used. Nothing will go to waste. Why? Because it is completely for this purpose and nothing will be used up. It keeps lasting. Anything from that's why the, the gidin that become the strings of David's harp are also described as a harp, a kinor that will be there at the end of days. It will have ten we said that the harp, the kinor in the in the times of the Mashiach will have ten strings instead of seven strings. Yeah, you start there's like this pattern's going on here, right? It it will still be there at the end of days. Anything created, so if David Cohen's principle is 
anything that is created in Bein Hashmashos, in that twilight time between the six days of creation and Shabbos, its purpose is for the end of days. Mm-hmm. It's a circle. Seven is always hakafos, seven hakafos, right? You make seven circuits on Simchas Torah. It cycles. Anything is seven is a cycle. Seven. The energy comes in on the seventh day, on the Shabbos, and it's a cycle. It keeps pumping in and so keeps each going. each one of these, like so even, I don't know, like the rainbow... Right? Or it means it has some purpose toward the end of days. The rainbow also, refers says, the rainbow is the splitting up. Uh, it, it, it's dividing into seven that which really should be united as a one. It's a one and a seven. It's all very awesome. It's like, well, it's really <laughs> supposed to be one, right? It's really yeah. sunlight yeah. is white light. Right. It splits as seven. Divide. You see it as right. seven, but it's really a unified, it's like a whole mashal of how we see. So each of these things, I think yeah. we mentioned them last time. Um, a lot of these things. Right? Yeah, I read the. So I didn't each bring of the those. Pre-campus with me this time. Maybe I have it here. So each, each of those, yeah. So if you look, the there's that. The end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rav, Rav David Cohen so has a book on Pirkei Avos, a parish to Pirkei Avos. And in there, it's in Hebrew, but it's not complicated oh. Hebrew. Oh. Um, <laughs> and in there, it would be fun. If you remind me, I'll try and send it to you. We could learn it together or something. It's, it's awesome. not so long, but he, <laughs> he develops out this theme for each one to show how it is for the end of days. Okay. So, the Maharal says, um, that belt of Eliyahu Hanavi, which is made from the ram that was created during six days of creation and comes from Akedas Yitzchak, why is it Eliyahu's belt? Because it represents, how do they know that's Eliyahu from that belt, right? It represents who Eliyahu is. He is the Mivaser. He is the one who says, it's time, it's Geula, it's the end. That is a representation of who he is. It's also more al olam haba shehu kadosh, meaning that which is created in the, in the twilight of the first week of creation is something that refers really to olam haba and kedusha. It's not something for this world. It's something of the next world. If it appears in this world, it's there to be mashpia. It's there to bring something of the next world into this world without being used up. And its purpose is really for the next world. And this is the malbush, the clothing of Eliyahu, meaning clothing, which is what a person wears to show what he is, what his role is, what he, what he represents in the world, the clothing of Eliyahu and Avi. That's, that's the leather of the ram. That's the skins of that ram. Okay. Let, I just want to keep moving with this one. Should we go a few minutes over, or should we wrap up on time? I know we. St- um, I, I, I'm sorry, I was late. So I'm okay, a little over. I'm too I know we can't. Well, I can't <laughs> go too again. over. I gotta go back and see my girl. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> sorry. Um, oh, it's like so fascinating. <laughs> it's, it's all amazing. Yeah. Okay, I think we will. I'm gonna skip this one. I'm now reading from Rav David Cohen. This is in his Maise Avos Siman Lebanim. I think it must be the first Chelek because I didn't put a Chelek number. I hope so. A lot of his writings are distributed. He'll write an essay and then in like volume six it'll show up again like the same topic. He'll add some more thoughts to it and then the same. Someday somebody's going to have to like integrate all of it together into one book. Sometimes you have to follow through. You see something in one. I didn't write the volume number so I assume it's volume one. 
Um, I think it is actually his Eliyahu Mevaser Tov. He has a whole thing on Eliyahu Hanavi. Okay, so Eliyahu Hanavi, whose job is to inform us of the end of days, takes his belt from that very ram that is related to the end of days. And this is what stood out about him. And in this passage, where he's called Eliyahu four times, remember, the fifth one is what? Hine, it was in Malachi, the very last oh. prophecy of the last of prophecies. Hine anochi sholeach lachem es hanavi. Right. That's the fifth place. The other okay. four are this passage with the belt. We recognized? Eliyah is the letters Ha'ayal, the ram. Whoa. I didn't this, pay attention. Yeah. That's good to have so, rabbis to pay attention. Wait, how do you spell it exactly? Eliyah, yeah. Aleph Lamed Yud Hey, which is the letters of Ha'ayal, the ram. Not just any ram, it's the ram. Specific okay, one. Just yeah. wanted to make sure. And this is connected, of course, and that's why it's connected to the end of days. That's what stands out in his name. This is what stands out to him. And over here, so, so then his question is so what is the connection between that and the particular role he's playing there, where he comes to the king and says, Is there no God in Israel that you have to go? Behold, there is a God in Israel, and he's going to make you. Right, there's going to be a punishment for your actions. There's the Ovid of Ozar, this king. Remember? Well, this is going to be a punishment. You're never going to get yeah. up from your death. This is your deathbed. It's not just right. your sickbed. Okay, this is the role of Eliyahu coming and informing that there is schar and onesh, that there is a day of judgment. There is such a thing as judgment. He's, this is him. Schar and judgment? Schar and onesh. There is reward and punishment. Okay. Which is another way of saying there is hashkacha pratis. God is watching everything we do, and it matters to him. Right. Somebody once said to me, not so long ago, we were in a shir, and a woman said, she feels so bad, like Moshe Rabbeinu, Hashem says to him, this was like in the end of Devarim, so it's a bracha maybe, and Hashem says, you're not going to go into the land because of your sin. She says, one little sin, and like, there has to be a consequence, like what about all the good he did? And I said, if it, if it didn't matter, the thing that he did that was, let's say, less perfect, I don't know how we could say such a thing about Moshe, less perfect than what it could have been, then that, if you would say that that didn't matter, then you take away all the meaning of all the perfect things he did, all the, all the amazing, like, the good doesn't mean as much if the bad doesn't mean as much. If our actions count, then they really, really count, mm-hmm. right? Doesn't mean there isn't rachamim, right? There is, there's mercy, there's patience, there's forgiveness. There's such a thing as forgiveness. We say Hashem is not mevater. We're not going to say, oh, Hashem says, never mind, it doesn't matter. It's true, but Hashem forgives. We could say, I'm sorry, he'll forgive, right? It's not that it's hopeless. It's not that it's hopeless. It's the opposite. This is our source of hope, that he'll come and he'll say there is judgment. There is a judge and there is judgment. And that is, that is I'm sending Eliyahu Hanavi to you before the day of God arrives. He's informing with us, and that's why he says, is there no God in Israel? Is this what it looks like to you, that there isn't Hashem who is on top of everything, managing everything, controlling everything? That was the message Eliyahu gives and he will come and he will say to the nations in our days may it be quickly right did you think there was no God in Israel that he wasn't there with his hand on them with his eye on Israel watching managing noticing every action that took place none of us has more Rahmanas than Hashem all the pain that we feel mm-hmm. all the stress all the sympathy all the, Hashem feels it more than us Okay. 
Rav Schwab in his commentary on the Pasuk, the Zacharias Brisi Yaakov. That was the Pasuk that we quoted where the name Yaakov is spelled with the extra Vav, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, he says, what is the difference between a miracle and that which is natural? So one, one difference we know is that it's more frequent. Nature is like the constant expression of God's will. A nace is a one-time expression of God's will. He said, but really, anything you look into deeply enough or trying to understand the science, at some point your science and understanding runs out, and you realize this is miraculous. If you look into something deeply enough, you realize it's miraculous. I'll give you an amusing example. I used to subscribe to a journal called Nature. Nature is, it's the leading science research journal that mm-hmm. altogether. So I'm sitting there and I'm reading this journal, sort of like in my bed in Mothersdorf, maybe not the most <laughs> typical right place to deliver nature. And I read this little one column piece and I was like, I for sure read that wrong. I gotta read that again. And it was describing these fish called cleopids and that they have the ability to hear sonar. These little fish, but they can hear sonar. Now, this is useful. Why? Because we assume everything has a use. By the way, whether you are like a Darwinist evolutionist or you're a from Jew, you believe that everything must have been created for a purpose. <laughs> it's interesting, right? Okay, so what's, what's the utility? Like, what, what would be the purpose of developing that ability? Because they're, main, they're, main hunter, they're mainly hunted by dolphins, and dolphins use sonar, right? They click yeah. out sonar to track them down. So this helps to reestablish like a balance, right? So that on the one hand, the dolphins can catch enough of them, and on the other hand, enough of them can get away to keep, okay. So this was, of course, a science journal, so they were not exactly coming from where I was coming from, which is why did Hashem implant it, okay. But interesting article. So they're trying to understand, so what, they have a little problem. What's the problem? This fish, according to, I, I really don't even understand exactly what I do understand. It's not an, it's not really the best way of doing it, but they have these ways that they try and estimate how long ago did some creature evolve. Now you could imagine that that is rife with opportunities for miscalculation when you start trying to project backwards. Anyway, you know, we're not even talking about like carbon dating. Like, okay. So they figured out when the Cleopids evolved. And the thing is that according to this calculation, Cleopids evolved 20 million years before dolphins evolved sonar. That's a little harder to understand. Mm-hmm. If there's an evolutionary advantage yeah. to something 20 million years in advance, yeah. then what was the evolutionary advantage? You don't have an evolutionary advantage until much later, so how did you know, right? So they said this is a wonderful example of anticipatory evolution. Oh, um, so I read this and I'm like, <laughs> I for sure read that wrong. <laughs> I go back, I was like, no, it really says that here. And it wasn't, I'm like looking at the front, is this like the April 1st edition? No. Like, oh, that is so anticipatory funny. evolution? That is a complete paradox. That makes no, it's an oxymoron. It makes, makes no sense at all, right? <laughs> you can explain anything if you give it a fancy name. Like, right. I don't know. Like, Rashad is saying, whatever it is in scientific phenomena, anything in nature, you dig into it deeply enough, you get to a point where you realize there's something miraculous. What's a miracle, then? A miracle comes to make a certain point. A miracle is a one-off example of Hashem's will, and it's not just to serve a function that could have been served by nature. The sea didn't just split for us to walk through 
where there could have been, I don't know, like a, a shoal of rocks to cross over. If you ever went to Caesarea, where they have, you know, you got the, um, you have the aqueduct come down, you go out on the beach and there's all these rocks that go out all the way into the water so you look like you're walking on the water even though you're just like in like half an inch of water. It just covers the rocks. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why the Red Sea couldn't have had rocks and you could just kind of like cross over and run for it. You didn't, need, you didn't need the sea to split to provide that which nature could have, provi could have provided, so to speak, that God could provide through nature. So what's it for? A nace comes to announce that there is a God who created the universe, who is paying attention to what is going on in the world he created, and that he is paying attention to the deeds of people. There is reward and punishment. As the Ramban puts it, Jewish people believe in hashgacha pratis, in divine personal intervention divine supervision. Everything, natural, not natural, whatever name you want to slap on it, is all really in the category of hidden miracles and God's constant supervision. Okay. So then what do, what, how, where do we draw the line? Where do we go from saying something is a nes nistar, a hidden miracle, to a nes nigla, a revealed miracle? You know what the difference is between a hidden miracle and a revealed miracle? whether a prophet announced it first. If a Navi announces the miracle before it happens, then we call it an open miracle. Otherwise, I mean, it might just be like a really, really bizarre natural phenomenon, which wouldn't be a problem for us because we believe God is controlling all natural phenomena, but it wouldn't make the point that there is a God who created the universe and who watches over it and cares about the deeds of people. Then it's an open miracle. So the real definition, Rav Schwab is taking an interesting tack. He says the real definition of an open miracle is that the Navi announces it first. Okay. That's kind of what, how, one way of defining, it's very interesting. So if a Navi or a Malach, he says if a Navi or a Malach oh, no. announces it first, then we call it an open miracle. Otherwise we call it a hidden miracle. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, right? Moshe comes and announces each of the makos before they happen. Eliyahu davened for this on Har HaKarmel when he has this conflict with the, with the prophets of the Baal and they each bring the, right, they have the he says, okay, we're going to have a, a, like a korban competition, right? What are you, iron, iron korban, like who's the last one down, right? If you can get the fire to come down. And Eliyahu even poured water all over him, his, his mizbeach, right? And he says, Hashem, aneni Hashem, aneni, aneni Hashem, aneni Hashem, answer me. He announces in advance, who, whatever is going to be the outcome, that's how you'll know it's God. You'll see, by, right? It's the announcing it in advance that makes it the powerful miracle. He is the Mivaser Tov, right? He's Vivaser Lanu Besoros Tovas Yeshuas Venachamos. Eliyahu's job is the one to come before the miracle and announce it and say there is a God and he cares about the deeds of man. So that was his role in this passage where he's called Eliyah, Eliyah, Eliyah. And that's his role in the future as well. His role is to come before Lifnei Vayom Hashem, before the day of God shall come, and announce it. Okay. So.
So come back to Hanukkah. Does it talk about a hidden miracle at all also, or just anything that doesn't fall in that category? I'm saying, right, like even as surprising as it may be, so somebody will come and say it could be this, it could be that. You can try and give it a scientific explanation, but in the end, even a scientific explanation is going to end up at some point in that which cannot be understood. So it's an interesting definition. It's a different, different definition. Okay. The Chidushe Harim, the Gera Rebbe. Every person has to try and free himself from feeling bound to the, to the Gashmias, to the physical. He should try as much as possible to feel that there's nothing tying him specifically to this world. He's, everything here is really a function of the spiritual. That yes, I need food, but I need food for spiritual reasons. And even the way that the food nourishes me is only a physical enactment of God's will. That's a different share for a different time. And a person will be happier because of this. This is also interesting, right? That the shmona comes above the savea, comes above the, su- the sus, right? The, you know, the word shmona also scrambles to be neshama and mishnah. Like it's a, oh yeah, it's all that which is lama, it's all that which is lamalam and hatava. Mishnah means the oral law, meaning that which shouldn't be written down. It's only passed on orally it's still as a shmona. spiritual oh, character. I really like yeah. this. Yeah, sorry. It's like a no. It's like trying fantastic. to decide how far you know you can branch in any direction on and on and on. Not that I know on and on and on, but theoretically, right? Okay. And this is this principle is the idea of the belt that a person wears that de- defines and separates between the parts of the body that have to touch the physical world and the parts of the body that can be elevated over the physical world. But this is the concept, and from this, a person, he says, a person should say the bracha of Ozer Yisrael Bigvura with great simcha, with great happiness. It should be a tremendous feeling of happiness to know that I can be separated. I can be separated and yet connected. We talked about that, right? That which separates allows us to be closer. We can be attached to the physical and yet feel that we're above and separated from the physical. If we remember that we are strangers in this world, we are really neshamas. We are really coming from a place that is spiritual. We are lamalam. We are neshama shmona, right? We are lamalam in hateva. We're strangers in a strange world. <laughs> we are really strangers in a very strange world. Then we realize that we have a purpose here, and our purpose is to be mashpia. It's to be really the tent of Sarah. That is the success of Avraham. That is the brach of Avraham. Is the tent of Sarah. It's to be B'nai Olam Haba, to be little embassies of Olam Haba, of the spiritual world, of God's works in the world. And we carry that within ourselves everywhere we go. Carrying an Ashama around is carrying the divine into every place we are. And, and trying to feel that we're an embassy into the world. And then we and our belongings don't become depleted. And that's very much the message of Hanukkah. In this parsha, right, Yaakov and Esav, Yaakov goes back for the little pachim kitanim, right, for the little vessels that were forgotten, the pachim, like the pach of shemen, the oil, right? He battles Esav spiritually. Ultimately, Esav says, you know what, why don't you come live with me in Harseir? And Yaakov says, oh, no, I can't do that. I've got little children. What does that mean? 
Chazal it's say. He says, no, no, no. I'm not. Basically, what Asaph was saying was, let's renegotiate. Before we were born, we were already negotiating. I'll take the physical world, you take the spiritual world. And then he meets Yaakov, and Yaakov comes, he's got all these animals and cattle and wives and children. And Asaph says, where'd you get all that? That's mine. He says, no, 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 this is just what Hashem gave me because it's what I need to function here. It's not, this isn't given to me. This isn't my reward right. in this world. I'm not taking anything from you. This is just in order to perform the spiritual tafkid. So there's a flow into the physical of bracha as well to do that. It's the tent of sorrow all over again. And then he says, come live with me. Like, we'll share. We'll be brothers in the vertical split, which was really what Asaph blew the whole time. That was the original goal, right? Well, I'll take care of the physical. You'll take care of the spiritual, and we'll share. And Yaakov says, no, no, I'm not going there. I can't. What will be with my children? If I take a share in the physical world, and I say I want to have any root here, what will I do to my children? I'm going to turn them into B'nai Olam Then what will be with them? We'll stick with B'nai, being B'nai Olam Haba, even though it means that sometimes in the physical, you're like Yaakov when all he had was a stick. Hmm. Right? When Yaakov picked up his walking stick to go to Haran, it was all he had. He had nothing. He didn't even seem to have clothes. Nothing. And you see him later, he's rich. doesn't matter. He'd still rather be Yaakov. He'd still rather be a Ben Olam Haba. And that's really, this is the message of Hanukkah. This is the message of Hanukkah. The Maccabim went fighting, waving swords. They didn't think they were going to fight the Yavanim. They thought they were going to be Moser Nefesh Al-Kiddush Hashem. They didn't. <laughs> they weren't thinking that a bunch of Kolal men who had been hiding in a cave for three years were really going to fight the Yavanim, like in a way that was a battle. They were going to fight the Yavanim because they were going to be... How long can you stay in a cave and watch Hashem's name be disgraced? That the only Jews that anyone can see are the Misyavnim, the ones who are living like Greeks? That's the Jews that everyone's going to know? The ones that you tell them, don't keep Shabbos, they say, okay. Don't keep bris milah, okay. We, you have so much to offer Greek society. We'll go with that. And finally, the ones who are in the cave said, that's it. Are we permitted to die al Kiddush Hashem? to sanctify God's name literally in the world, and they were told, you're not obligated, you're allowed. And they did. That's what they went out to do. But it happens to be, since they're going out for a spiritual purpose, the bracha didn't stop. Nothing got used up. Their lives didn't get used up. Their oil didn't get used up. It's coming from a purely spiritual place. If that's where you are and who you are, then in fulfilling your tafkid, you don't get used up. So, little... Monica, Mirza Shem next week. I hope I'll manage. Watch your emails for updates. Hopefully, I'll be here next Tuesday. Mirza Shem will start the next bracha. I want to, yeah, I want to hear more about Hanukkah. I want to hear more about Hanukkah too, but I don't know if I could prepare a new Hanukkah share this week. We'll see. Or maybe we could prepare an old one. Practical to prepare, prepare a new one. So because I have the notes, because I have notes. That's what I'm saying. Watch your emails. It may be even to review this year is not practical. But hopefully to review it and give it will work out. If it doesn't, then I'll send out the email. We'll be in Shavarach. I'm not making the Shavarachas. So we'll see how it goes. We're going to. Thank you.